You structured, Lord, the calendar in the Old Testament for your people that three times a year the men had to come to Jerusalem to worship and to feast and to be grateful for what you had done. They, they certainly could uh, bring their families. But it was something that you commanded them to do. We're coming into a season where we've got Thanksgiving and Christmas bunched together. And those really are holy days. They truly are. It gives us uh, a chance to be with family. It gives us a chance to have some time off from work. There's a lot of bustle, as we all know. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of travel. We uh, are grateful that because of what you've done, there's thanksgiving in our heart. Thank you for the model that was set for us in the early years of this nation by those people that uh, made their way over on that little tiny ship, and so many of them died on the way. They, they were about to starve to death. And providentially, you sent that, that Indian to them who scared them when he showed up, and then he spoke the perfect king's English, and they were shocked and stunned. And they were about to go under, and then he showed them how to survive. He showed them how to plant that corn and put a fish in the hole and fertilize it. And they were so mindful of your care and they were so mindful of your provision that they had to have that feast. And that's, uh, that's really where all this came from. So I would pray for us and with all that's going on and with all of the... Uh, Gosh, the sifting scenario in this nation that we would not lose our ability to say thank you for what we have. We have been blessed. And then before we know it, it's going to be Christmas. And it's, it's a fun time, especially with little kids around, how much it means to them. But in the midst of all of that, Lord, may we not forget the, the, the message uh, that, that changed the world, that you sent your son who was born of a virgin. And he came and lived a perfect life, and he uh, died for us. He was buried, he rose the third day. And when we trust in him and him alone, we are forgiven of our sins. We are thankful for that message of Christ, and we are thankful, Lord, that he saves us from sin, but we are also thankful that he just keeps on saving us as we go through life. We're living in hard times. We're, we're living in difficult times. We're living in times that uh, concern us because of all the, the changes that are going on, and as we've said so many times in here, it just looks like things are out of control, the foundations are being destroyed, but we thank you that you rule and you reign. And in the midst of this chaos and in the midst of a lawless society, we thank you that you are our firm rock and anchor. I pray for the guys that... Uh, are living paycheck to paycheck, and really they're living, they wish they were living paycheck to paycheck. They're living, some of them are living day to day. Encourage their hearts. Don't let us forget, Lord, that you took your people in the wilderness through living paycheck to paycheck, living day by day. And you, and you never failed them. They failed you, but you didn't fail them. So as, as we wrap this section up for this semester, Lord. Help us to apply what we've read and learned in Hebrews 11 as we face new challenges, new opportunities to, to, to trust in you anew. Um, help us to walk by faith. 
Help us to look to you, to really believe your promises, to really believe that you are the God who sustains us and makes a way and provides. We don't get everything that's going on. We don't have to understand everything. We just want to know and understand you. So help us, Lord, to press in to you as we enter this season. I pray that it'll be a time, regardless of where we are, of trust, a time of joy, a time of, in spite of our circumstances, fixing our eyes on Jesus and realize what we've been given and realizing that this earth is temporary. This isn't forever here. This is a brief, momentary walk that has affliction, but soon it'll be over. We look forward to that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we say. In your great name, amen. So Hebrews 11, been there all this semester, and we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, look at a tweet in Hebrews 11 tonight. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you guys know what a tweet is? I'm not talking about Tweety Pie, that yellow bird and Tom and Jerry's, and the young guys don't know about that. But um, there's this thing called Twitter. And I found out this week I'm now officially up on Twitter. Um, and I, oh yeah, I'm thrilled. Um, I didn't know I was on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter now. We've been working on this getting stuff online and the CDs and eventually some video and it's taken a while and it's, it's, they're, they're that close. But they've gone ahead and they're doing this Twitter stuff and they're basically, you know, it's these short messages and you're know, like, uh, I'm, I'm going down to Starbucks to, to get a, a, a latte and then a massage, like, you know, who cares? <laughs> this is really important stuff, you know, to let people into your life like that. But we're using it, taking some stuff out of Point Man and, you know, anyway. And we're getting responses. I had a guy, it's a new world for me. And this guy said, I'm so glad you're Twittering. What he doesn't know is, I don't even know how to Twitter. There's some young guy Twittering for me stuff out of my book. So, but they're short messages and they can only be X amount of characters. And I don't, you know how many characters? How many? 160? 140, whatever it is, it's something like that. Well, we're going to look at uh, Hebrews 11 tonight. And when I was looking at this, I said, you know, this, this really is kind of a, a tweet. It's kind of one of these Twitter things. Because it is so brief, yet it covers such an immense amount of territory. As we've been looking at these men who walked by faith, tonight we come to Joshua. And this is such a summary, and it is so compact, and it is so concise, that Joshua's name is not even mentioned. Although it's clear that he is the one who is in mind here. Um, this was written to Jews, and the book of Hebrews was written to help Jews understand the transition between the Old Testament and between the coming of Christ. And it is about, it, it's a book that shows them that all the Old Testament law was fulfilled in Christ. He is the focus of the Old Testament. He is the focus of the New Testament. And in Hebrews 11, you've been here with us, these different men walk by faith, trusting in the one who was to come. Um, that's, it's about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. So we've been in Hebrews 11, the men who have been walking by faith, then you come to Hebrews 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the men that went before us in the Old Testament, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. We're now running the race. They finished the race. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, and here you go, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So we're living as they did. They were looking ahead to when Christ would come. He's, he's come death, burial, resurrection of Christ, now he's going to come back. But our eyes are fixed on him as we are navigating this path of life. We look to these men in the Old Testament because, as we saw last week, 
the individuals in the Old Testament, the individual men, and the story of the nation of Israel instructs us. Um, Romans 15.4 is, is really the compass as you do this study. Um, we've gone over this for several weeks. 15.4 Romans, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance or endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So tonight, we find ourselves in verse 30. And here is the very short summary statement that encompasses uh, a key event in the, in, the, in the life of the nation. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Now that's some significant information that is uh, reduced to its lowest common denominator. Um, we know about, let me back up. These people knew exactly what the author of Hebrews was speaking about because they were people that knew their history. They were people that knew, that, that, were, that were raised in the Old Testament. So they knew the stories. Um, when, I was, um, when I was maybe seven, my folks bought a 10-volume illustrated um, set of books that went through all the stories of the Bible. And they, they were beautifully illustrated. It turns out they were, this, this was a, a volume that was printed by the Seventh-day Adventist publishing company in California. And I can remember the author uh, was Arthur Maxwell. I still have those books. I have them. And I'm going to be reading those books to my grandkids as Mary continues to put uh, spike our kids' uh, drinks with fertility drugs. Um, <laughs> just something. We're walking by faith, but want to help as much we can. And there are ten volumes. And uh, I was lousy at math, always have been as a kid. But for some reason, I, had a, I just loved to read. And, and I, I, I remember when my mom and dad bought those books. And I was so glad they did. And I spent hours reading those things and the picture, the illustrations. And so those Bible stories, man, I can still see some of those illustrations. I can still see some of those pictures. And I really learned the Old Testament when I was uh, seven, eight, and nine, just reading through those, just reading through them. And they had pictures, you know? I like pictures. I mean, come on, you like pictures too. We still want, I, want, I still want pictures with my books. But it, it imprints in your mind the stories. So, you see, these people knew their history. And I find it fascinating in here, he doesn't even mention Joshua. But Joshua was the guy who was leading the nation. There had been a transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And, and this is, well, once again, I mean, by faith, verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. Why? Because God rolled back the waters, and not only did God roll back the waters, but he dried the land. Nobody got mud on their sandals. When they got to the other side, no one was doing this, getting the mud off. Because, is that not amazing? How God is in the details. I, I, I got to tell you something. I caught myself this. I caught myself this morning. I just caught myself worrying about some details that were so stupid. I mean, I got to tell you, it was just stupid. And I, and I thought, why would I even give any thought to that? I, I, why? I mean, God knows this. 
And God's answered prayer here and here. And now, why am I fretting over something that stupid? I mean, it makes no sense. It's a lack of trust. I mean, I was really kind of embarrassed and I was, and I was angry at myself. Come on, get your head in the game here. You know, God is in the details so much that when they, by faith, they crossed the Red Sea, they grew it on dry land. That is staggering. It's staggering. And those walls of water are stacked up and they passed. Now, here's what's wild. This is a summary of what's going on. This is a summary of Old Testament history. Because in 29, you got passing through the Red Sea. Then you go to 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Um, some significant stuff happened between, between 29 and 30. Significant stuff. But what happens in 30, it says by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. All right, this was a great victory. This was a milestone. Uh, we look back over our lives and we see certain uh, chapters of our lives where God came through for us in a remarkable way. Maybe your marriage was hanging by a thread and you thought there was no possible way it was going to stay together. Yet God somehow, some way, you're still together. And you marvel and you're just, you're just stunned. You see? Um, financially, Somehow you've made it. And then there are times when God gives us a release. He gives us, he gives us resolution to a crisis. And, and those are mountaintop moments. Those are, those are wonderful moments. Those are the victories that we remember. Those are the answers to prayer where God's name is honored. The Red Sea uh, event when they crossed on dry land. Man, that goes down through the generations. I mean, Hollywood's, you know, amazing. Cecil B. DeMille made a living off Bible stories. I read his biography about three years ago. And that guy was able to take concepts in the scripture. They weren't always accurate to the T. But he was teaching through movies these stories of the Old Testament. So the Red Sea was a phenomenal victory. Uh, you, you get to Jericho, it was a phenomenal victory. Why? because they were finally going into the promised land under Joshua. Now, you got a big gap between 29 and 30. In 29, they're being led by Moses. In, in verse 30, they're being led by Joshua. And it was a tremendous victory. We love the thrill of victory. We love it when God comes through. We love it when he does great things for us. Just prior to the Red Sea, uh, just prior to going into Jericho, what happens is, they finally crossed the Jordan, and as they're crossing the Jordan, God pulls another Red Sea. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests walk in, and, the, and they crossed it at flood stage. Um, Jordan can be a pretty placid river, but at flood stage, that water can be... Um, that water can flood and it can be almost a mile wide and a couple of hundred feet deep. And that's when God said, I want you to cross. Now, why did God do, why did God do that? Why couldn't, they, why, why, couldn't they, why couldn't they cross when it was just a placid, nice little flowing river? Because God wanted them to walk by faith. He was going to demonstrate his power. And so when they crossed and he held back the water and they crossed, all the people crossed, he had the priest out there in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant. And after all the people had crossed. This is finally into the promised land. They took 12 stones and they piled it up on the middle and they put it up on the bank. Why did they pile up 12 stones? It says, so that when your children ask you, why are those stones piled up? That you'll tell them of what the Lord did this day. You see? There are victories that we should share with those around us, share with our kids, our grandkids should know about. The victories that occur in your life, you should share. And this is a great victory in verse 30, when the walls of Jericho fell down. Uh, just to set the historical context, you can still visit Jericho today. Jericho was built on a mound, a big mound. Um, the mound came down like this. The city set up top. There was a retaining wall circling the bottom. 
you had to get you had to get up over the retaining wall and then go up this crest that was pretty sharp uh, to find a wall that was about 25 feet high and six feet wide. It was massive. There was no way to get into Jericho. But if you know the story, they did what God told them to do. They go, they go in every day, they circle it. On the seventh day, they give the command and God collapsed the wall. It was an incredible story. It was an incredible victory. Now, I want to fill in some gaps on this story. Because, you see, we love the victories. But oftentimes, before you get to the victories, there's a time where you're not sure God's going to come through. There's a time where you're going to struggle. Uh, I'd like you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. On your way there, Paul Tripp, who I, I just like Paul Tripp's stuff, Paul Tripp has said this. He says, the Bible isn't an encyclopedia. It is a story. The great origin to destiny story of redemption. In fact, it is more than a story. It is a theologically annotated story. Watch this. It is a story with God's notes. In all of these stories, there are notes there are lessons that God has for us today to learn. Now listen, if you, were, if you were with these guys in Jericho when the wall came down, that would have been incredible. That would have been phenomenal. And we love those moments of great victory. But if you go back to Numbers 13, we're going to fill in some of the gaps between the Red Sea experience and between the walls of Jericho coming down. Because, see, this is the normal Christian life where we're walking by faith. The victories come. They come now and then. We're thankful for them. But <laughs> there are some lessons to be learned through simply showing up and trusting when you can't see the outcome. And that's where the Christian life is lived out. When, when you're simply saying, Lord, show me, I don't get this. There are times when you're hoping the marriage is going to stay together. We have guys in here that wanted that, and the wife took off. I talked to a guy in California this weekend, and he wanted to hold that marriage together. He wanted to hold it together. Had his kids there at the church with him. You know, the wife's gone. She didn't, she's, she's done. She's finished. She's walked out. It's heartbreaking. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. How do you make sense of that? Let's go to Numbers 13, because... Something significant happened in Numbers 13 that involves Joshua, the guy who was leading them as they circled, um, as they circled uh, Jericho. Um, when they came out of the Promised Land and when they went through the Red Sea, once again, uh, it, it was incredible, okay? You get to Numbers 13, now they're through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army has been destroyed. They're going into the promised land, which God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going home. Uh, verse thir uh, chapter 1 of Numbers 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is right after the Red Sea. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So there are 12 tribes. He basically says, hey, I want you to pick 12 guys, get a leader from each tribe. Okay. And you send these guys on a reconnaissance mission into the land that is now inhabited by all the ites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaan, all these ites. I want you to go check it out. Now, there were great cities. They, they had built great cities. They had uh, all the technological advancements. The, all these ites had walled cities. They had iron chariots. Israel didn't have any of this. So they go check out the land. You know, it's a, it's a recon mission, these 12 guys. And... Verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the sons of Israel at the wilderness of Paran, at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. By the way, the first city when they went into the promised land to take was Jericho. That's the significance of Jericho. The first walled city, fortified city. Okay, first one. It's a big deal. 
Okay? 27. They told him, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. You know, a cluster of grapes so big it took two guys to bring it back. So is it a great land? Is it a phenomenal land? Yeah, it is. Now look at 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Anak, what they're talking about, there were giants in the land. There were literal giants, okay? And so they give this report, and they start focusing not on the greatness of the land, not focusing on, on the fruit in, in Deuteronomy 6 in regard to this passage. God said, look it, I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to have, give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you orchards you didn't plant. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. All that stuff that's there that those people have done, I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to drive them out. It's all going to be yours. Are they focusing on that? No. All they can see are the giants. That's all they can see. And because of their fear of the giants, look at verse 31. The men who had gone up said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are too strong for us. Now, just earlier in verse 30, Mo, uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. What's happening is these 10 spies who are leaders, they have titles of leadership, but they don't have the character for leadership. They got the titles, they won the election, but they don't have the character to lead. They don't have it. All they do is campaign all the time because they just want to stay in power. But they don't have the character to lead because the moment they reach a crisis, they are not mindful of what God has done. Stop and think about this. There's giants in the land. Okay, there's giants in the land. Stop and think about this. What has just happened to you? Let's just stop and think here for a minute. What has occurred here in recent history? What's occurred in the last six months? What's occurred in the last year of your life? Well, just go back a few weeks. You're trapped. You've got the Red Sea in front of you. You've got mountains on two sides. You've got Pharaoh's army behind you. And there's no way. There's no escape. There's no way out. And what happened? The power of God delivered you. And you're saying there's giants in the land and we're not able to take these guys? Well, let's back up a little more. How'd you get out of Egypt? God came through and showed his power by sending 10 different plagues on Egypt. The power of God did, power, did, did miracles of nature, sent darkness, but it wasn't dark at the border where you guys lived in Goshen, but it was dark over here in Egypt. You had frogs, you had, you had all kinds of stuff. The power of God was demonstrated, finally broke him down. The firstborn were killed. That's how you got out because God did 10 displays of his power. And then you go to the Red Sea and you got 11 displays of, red, of God's power. And now three weeks later, you're saying there's giants in the land and we can't take these guys. That's not much leadership. Now, this is an example of not walking by faith. Okay? You want to know how to walk by faith? Well, sometimes you look at the positive. Listen, there are two kinds of role models. There's positive role models and negative role models. Everyone wants a positive role model. Some of you guys had negative role models as fathers growing up. You can learn as much from a negative role model as you can from a positive. But you've got to stay teachable, and you don't have to listen to the lie, well, I'm doomed to do what my father did who was so negative. You're not doomed. You're not doomed at all. You can learn from a bad role model. We look at these guys, Romans 15, 4, these things are written for our instruction that we might persevere. Let's not be like these guys who saw the power of God and the next time a giant showed up, they flipped out and said, we can't take him. The point is you can take him. If he came through for you 11 times, why wouldn't he come through for you the next time? That's walking by faith. It's knowing the character of God. God is predictable. God comes through. God fulfills his promises. They wouldn't listen to it. They, they wouldn't look at the facts. They wouldn't look at the evidence. Now, I can... I can Go off on these guys all day long. But see, how about me? <laughs> how about me? I've seen God do this and this and this and this. And, and Oh my gosh, look at this. I never saw this one coming. Oh crud, what the heck is this about? You know. Well, hold on here. See, I got to do, I got to put this in there. If he did this, that's why it's, sometimes it's good just to kind of Get up early, and, and you're facing a crash time. It's good to get up early before anybody else is up and just be quiet and get your Bible and pray and just think a little bit. 
you know, Lord, I got this thing coming my way. I don't, I don't see a way out. But you know, do a little history. You know, I look back and you did this. Gosh. Then you did this. And then there was that. I almost forgot that. And then there's that. And all of a sudden, you know what? Your heart's quieted. And fear subsides. Why? You're looking at the facts of our God. He came through for me. Why would you stop now? Why would you stop? He doesn't stop. Okay. So here's what happens. These guys come back, give a terrible report. They, 10 of the 12, okay? Now, let's name the 12 spies. Joshua. Give me another name. Caleb. Caleb. Give me another name without looking at the text. <laughs> there are 10 more guys, and they were all leaders. They were leaders. Everyone looked up to them. The key man in the community. Nobody remembers these guys. You know why? They're a, bunch of they're a bunch of losers. They're a bunch of whiners. They're a bunch of counterfeits. They didn't know the one true God. Not at all. They had the position, but they didn't have the heart for God. They, what they do, they stir up the people. And because they have stirred up the people, God says, okay, this is going to stop. Joshua and Caleb stood up, and they tried to turn the people. Look at God will fight for us, as he's done in the past. What happened was, Joshua stands up in 14.6. Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land, watch this, and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Are they focusing on the giants? No, there are giants there. They're focusing on the Lord. Hey, hey guys, there are all kinds of giants. There are all kinds of giants. The greatest of all the giants is God. Is that not true? No matter what the giant is, God trumps every giant. Now watch this. Verse 9, only don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. Still a lot of fear right now among Christians. Don't fear them. Yeah, but it's all changed. So it has. He doesn't want us walking in fear. He wants us walking in what? Faith. You might have been shocked God wasn't. So let's just keep walking by faith and let's not fear the people. Let's not fear the people in high places that are doing what they're doing and you get it. Only do not fear the people of the land for they will be our, watch this, pray. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And here's the problem with congregational votes. <laughs> I, I do think that's kind of funny. Congregations can turn on you real quick. You know, you know what God says about his church when you really look at it biblically? You know who's to lead the church of the living God? Mature, godly men who have proven themselves as men who have walked by faith. That's who you want calling the shots. The church is not an Iowa caucus. <laughs> the church is a benevolent dictatorship. Jesus is head of the church. So we have elders. You appoint elders in every city, Paul said. Men of mature character who walk with the living God and have a track record. Okay? Those are the men that are lead the church. We don't take a, it, it, you know, this democracy thing, we're just enamored with it. But really, God says, I want the mature. It's like in a family. I, who's to lead a family? The mature ones. The husband and the wife, who are more mature than the children. We have a situation right now with these little kids, 
you can see a four-year-old kid, and that sucker runs the whole family. Because it's all around him. It's all about him. And you know, okay, that's, that's insane. God wants the mature ones to lead. It's always been that way. So they tell the truth. They stand up to the whole congregation. So God will fight for it. And then what happens? The people take stones. They're going to kill them. They don't want to hear it. Okay. So here's what God says. If you read through the rest of the text, um, look at 27 of 14. God says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Now stop and think of the context. How many times had they seen God's power? They'd seen it 11 times. And what are they doing? They're grumbling and they're complaining. The thing I want to watch in my life is that I don't want to be a complainer. I don't want to be a whiner. You know what I'm saying? I want to be a thankful man. I want to be a man that is grateful. I want to be a man that has gratitude. Is everywhere, everything the way I want it to be? No, but I don't want to be a whiner and I don't want to be a complainer. I want to be thankful. Watch this. Say to them, 28, as I live, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to you, except Caleb and Joshua. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, and that's what they said earlier. Man, our, kid, our kids are going to be preyed on like uh, little kids at the zoo when the tiger gets out. Um, your children whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. They will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Look at 36. As for the men whom the Moses sent out to spy out the land, who had returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land, they died by a plague before the Lord. So those 10 guys, those 10 leaders, those counterfeit leaders who stirred up and fomented the rebellion among the people, God sent a plague, they were done. Okay, so now what has been the judgment that God has rendered? Watch this. They're going to wander in the wilderness. Instead of going into the promised land, they're just, I mean, they're a couple weeks away. Instead of going into the promised land, what's going to happen? They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, including the two guys who stood up and did what was right, Joshua and Caleb. This is the lesson that I want us to camp on. Because you see, when we look at Hebrews 11 about Jericho, that was a tremendous victory. It was an incredible victory. Let's give God glory. Thank you, Lord, for this. But know this, it took them 40 years to get to that moment. 40 years. I have mentioned this many times. I am always struck by when I read through Psalms how many times I see the word wait. I don't like the word wait, and neither do you. So coming here on the way, as you're driving here to the Bible study tonight, you're coming up to an intersection, there's traffic everywhere. Finally, you see that light turn green, and you're the ninth car back. And, you, and, you, and you're watching those, come on, come on, come on, come on. And finally, they move, and you're moving, and just as you're getting to the intersection, that light turns yellow and you graciously submit and stop. That's not what you did. If I hadn't have been in front of you, it would have been all right. No, I had my foot to the accelerator, man. Yeah. We don't want to wait, do we? We don't want to wait for anything. No, we don't. To wait is, well, we don't want to wait. But how often does God call us to wait? How, guys, here's my point. We love these victories in the Scripture, and we see them, and we praise God for the victories. But usually before there is a victory, there is a time of waiting in the wilderness, learning the lessons that make us into mature men. And it's hard. And it's difficult. And we're one... 
Listen, here's, here's what's baffling. Joshua, let's stop and think about it. You put yourself in Joshua and Caleb's shoes, okay? Yeah, it was great. You walk around, God collapses all Jericho. They go in, this uh, lady, uh, Rahab, who was a prostitute. Uh, they had sent in two spies. Uh, it's interesting, later, Joshua learned. He didn't send 12 spies, he sent two. <laughs> now, there's a man who, learned, who knows how to learn a lesson, Okay. He found two seasoned men. We don't even know their names. Their names are never given. Two proven seasoned men. He sends them in to spy out Jericho. They're checking it out. Somehow, providentially, they meet Rahab, this prostitute, and she has heard of their mighty God. She's heard of this great God. She has more faith in the mighty God than the ten spies. She's heard from a distance about this mighty God. She said, hey, we're, we're quaking in our boots. And, and she worked a deal with them where she hid them and protected them. He said, yeah, but she lied. Well, you know what? Yeah, she did. Well, how can you justify that? Well, how many times have you lied this week? Or how many times have I lied? I'm not saying she's perfect. She's not perfect. You're not perfect either. Yeah, she lied. Well, I just have a real problem with that. Fine. Fine. She lied, okay? Should she have lied? No, but she lied. How many many times has God forgiven you and covered your tail for lying? Or me? So she lied and said, oh, they went down this way, and she's got them upstairs on the rooftop covered up with flax. They're up there the whole time. Yeah, she lied. But she is also what you would call an absolute infant believer. Okay? She'd never taken courses at Dallas Seminary. She didn't know. She's just, she's trying to cover for these guys, and God saw her heart. Okay? And then what happens is, they said, hey, listen, for what you've done, she said, when you come and this happens, I I want my family to be saved. Would you save me and my family? Hey, you take this scarlet thread, you put it on your window. And so when they come and the walls collapse and then they go in and take the land, everybody went down except Rahab and her family. Okay, so that, we know that story. Okay. But before you ever get... Oh, and by the way, then she becomes... Is this not wild? You know what I'm going to say. Where's my... Where's my... Uh, Where's my Heidelberg here? I, I think I read this earlier this semester. But the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, you have a catechism? What's that? Catechism is what they did. This is a great tool. They put catechisms together. It was a method of teaching children and a lot of the rural workers who couldn't read. This is back in the 1500s when they're breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. So the, one of these godly priests who was ruling over a section of Prussia, he got some pastors together. He said, listen, I want you to condense the teachings of the Bible so that we can teach them and educate our people and our children. Okay. So they put them in question-answer form. And there's a whole bunch of questions. Uh, question 27 says, what do you understand? Come on, come on. There it is. What do you understand by the providence of God? Now listen to this. Every time I read this, I get encouraged. Listen to this. This is a summation of what the Scripture teaches about the providence of God. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God. Ever-present. Even when it seems like he's not at work. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, your tree, the leaf on your tree and the blade of your grass, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Now, right there, I feel better. And then there are one, two, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, uh, nine verses footnoted for each of those points. Because it's from the Bible, directly from the Word of God. Now, the reason I bring this up 
<laughs> great victory. It's, the walls collapse, except for this woman, Rahab, who's a prostitute. My gosh, what a story she must have had. Okay? And God is merciful to this prostitute woman who lied to save the two spies. He does not deal with us according to a sin. He does not reward us according to our iniquity. And this prostitute becomes, she didn't know it, but she is going to become the great, great grandmother of a guy named David. What's in your family tree? <laughs> is that not great? See, we, 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 we're, hey, we're living today. We got our stuff today. And we're just walking through our stuff. But do you know that God has got it all linked? When that lady trusts it, say, I'm going to put this red through. I believe in this God. Okay. Well, uh, let me, uh, it's like J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He, said, no, what's, he says, hey, the great news is not that we know God, but that God knows us. That's what's great. And he not only knows you, but he knows your descendants. And see, as we said a few weeks ago, God not only does a work in people's lives, he loves to do a work in the, in the next generations. So here's a lady. She, she's a prostitute. She's going to be the great-great-grandmother of David. There is the providence of God. So what are you dealing with right now in your family and your marriage and all this stuff? And you just, man, we're right here. We're just trying to survive. We started, yeah, yeah but you got kids watching. you got grandkids. And see, all this stuff is interconnected. Okay. I love that. Absolutely love it. You kids watch you when you you kids watch when you go through trials. And maybe and they're young and they don't get it. They, they they don't understand it, but they get older and kids start figuring things out when they get older. And they can they, and they know they just figure things out. And they see things they don't see when they're younger. But lessons, even if they don't get the lesson immediately, later they'll pick up on the lesson. I've got to move on this thing. I can't spend too much time here. Uh, so let's talk. All right, now let's, let's, here's where I'm trying to go with this. So we know about the, the wall coming down, and that's wonderful, and Rahab coming to the Lord and all that. Okay. But before that great victory, there's 40 years, and Joshua and Caleb had done what was right, and they have to wait. Okay. Some of you guys are right there. What would it be like to have done the right thing and to see God say, I appreciate your standing and leading and being a man of God. But I'm putting you on hold for 40 years. For 40 years, all they did was just maintain. If you're like me, you probably don't do well at maintaining. Men want to progress. Men want to achieve. Uh, I, I, you can take these different batteries that help you understand your temperament and all that. There's one that's called the disc. They'll give it to you at Dallas Seminary. When I took that, I came out, and they got all these charts and all that. It's fascinating stuff. I came out in three different areas. Uh, my normal self, myself under stress, and myself, I can't remember what it was. There was some other, you know, they, they nailed this from all these different angles. All the way, no matter where I am in life, you know what I am? I'm results oriented. I want to check it off. I want to, I, I, I have my list and I want to check it off. I want to check that off. I want, I, want to re, I want results. Let me put it this way. I don't do well maintaining. I don't do well circling the airport. Let's land this sucker. Are you with me on that? I kind of think you are because you're a guy. Do you not think Joshua and Caleb, do you think they ever had to fight off bitterness towards God? Oh, I think so, because they were just human. For 40 years, they're being penalized, not for what they did, but for what others had done. They're simply maintaining. They have no results or accomplishments for 40 years. For Joshua, the best and most fruitful years of his life virtually vanished, circling the airport. 
Um, I think there was frustration. I think they had to fight off frustration and a sense of utter futility. As we all do as men when we're in a holding pattern. And when God calls us to wait. Can I give you a great verse? A great verse. This is a great verse when you find yourselves in situations where God has you waiting. You're waiting for the answer. You're waiting for the walls to come down. You're waiting for the great victory. But he is, he's got you on, on hold. He's got you circling the airport. You're waiting and you're fighting off frustration. You're fighting off anger. You say, well, I don't understand this, God. I don't understand why you're working this way. All right, here you go. You ready? Isaiah 64, 4. Here's what it says. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Why do we get so frustrated when God has us wait? Why do we get so frustrated when we're on hold? Because we have this very real sense in our minds that nothing is happening. Why do you have that sense? Because you can't see anything happening, therefore nothing is happening. But this verse says, no eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. In other words, here's the point, here's the perspective that we don't see unless we open our eyes spiritually. As God has me waiting, as God's got me on hold, as I can't pull the trigger, and I want to. I, I, you know, I started a business, and this thing, man, you know, all I, I'm just feeding this thing. I can't get this thing to self-sustain. I can't get it to work. I'm just barely, I'm hanging on by my fingernails. You, you know, I, Lord, I'm working my tail off here. I put all these years into this, okay? And you're seeing nothing for it. What do you do with that? You get discouraged. The longer you wait, the more you lose hope. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Here's what's happening. We're frustrated because we think God's not active. The fact of the matter is, he's got us waiting because he's setting the table for us. Oh, this week? He didn't say this week. Oh, this year? He didn't say this year. <laughs> I love reading biographies because you read biographies and you see the providential hand of God and you see these principles. Not just guys in the Bible. You guys ever read a book by Philip Keller, The Shepherd... A shepherd looks at Psalm 23. I've told this story in here before. It may, I think it's the best book ever written on Psalm 23. That book has sold, I, I would think, five, six, seven million copies. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Philip Keller never, ever intended to write that book. The story is he grew up in Kenya. His father was, uh, a cat, had a cattle ranch. He loved cattle. He loved cattle. He goes to, uh, he goes to uh, Canada, immigrates to Canada, studies animal husbandry. You know what he's going to do? He's going to have a cattle ranch. And he does, gets all of his education. He, I mean, that's his life work. He's going to breed cattle. And he finds, and, and he's, he gets a little bit of money together, and he finds this old, dilapidated cattle ranch. And he gets some money together, and the guy's old and he just wants out and he's able to get this money he's able to buy this every penny he had went into buying this and he buys it and he's got no money left to buy cattle and he, just, he, can't, he has no money the only thing he can afford are sheep he hates sheep <laughs> he has no interest in sheep He's a cattleman. He's not a sheep man. Hey, you read the history of the American West? There were wars between the cattlemen and the sheep guys. They can get along. Because sheep, they'll eat, they'll, eat it up, they'll eat up that grass by the roots. Boy, cattlemen hate, hate those sheep guys. They hate them. They'll just shoot them on sight, you see. This guy didn't want sheep. He wanted cattle. But he couldn't get the money. But he thought, all right, I'll start. Okay, I'll, I'll buy you. Got these sheep, you know. And... and Okay, maybe I can get, the, you know, get, get a little money. I'll get this herd and develop it and sell the wool and the whole thing. You know. Okay. Sheep are a renewable resource. You know that wool and that whole thing? It comes back every year. It's sort of like trees. You know trees are a renewable resource. 
A lot of people in America don't know that. I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> just now I feel better already. So he said, you know, I'll do this a year or two, and then I'll get some money together, and I'll go buy cattle. Well, he's with the sheep, and he's doing it a year or two. Hates it. Can't stand it. Those animals drive him nuts. And, and, and then, you, you know what? He, he can't. He just can't. It, two years come, and he doesn't have any more money than he started with. So he's got to do another year of sheep. And then third year, and then fourth year, and five years. And all these years, he's doing this sheep, and he, and he hates every stinking moment of being with these sheep. Hates it. Wants it. Doesn't understand why God won't bless him. Doesn't understand why God won't prosper him. Give him the desires of his heart. He wants to be a cattleman. He's with these sheep. He had no idea that one day he's doing a Bible study, asked to teach in his little church. He gets up and teaches Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still. And he starts talking about sheep. And people are mesmerized. Where'd you get this? Well, I read sheep. And some publisher found out. You got to write this up. And they saying, you know, it sold five million copies and it was born out of years. Here's what people don't understand. Oh, what a wonderful book. What a wonderful ministry. Oh, thank you for your vision and your foresight and your planning and your faith. He hated those sheep. That was born out of almost despair and disappointment and not understanding why God was making him wait. Is that not interesting? See, if you're waiting, let's say this from the scripture. If you're, God doesn't put guys on hold just to put them on hold. There's a reason you're waiting. Is, it, is there not? Ecclesiastes, consider the work of God, for who can straighten what he has been. In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider, because God has made the one, the one as well as the other. There is a reason when things aren't going your way. There's a reason when it's not turning your way, when things aren't falling out. There's a reason God's not blessing the way you want him to bless. But see, you got to consider and you got to think and you got to step back and you say, wait a minute, I'm all frustrated and this is, this is not what I want. But you got to step back and say, what is going on here? God is at work. I got to consider. Can I see how it's going to sort? No. I told this story this weekend, really because. It was the ninth talk I gave this weekend, and I was so fatigued I lost my mind. Because <laughs> I've never told this story before in public. I've said that I got into men's ministry because I was asked to leave a church, and that's true. But it goes, there's a little bit more to that. The greatest struggle, I've had two great, great struggles with waiting, periods of time, period of years one in my early 30s, and then one towards my late 30s. And we had made a major move. We, were, we waited for a year, waiting on God, asking for direction and clarity. God gave it to us, and we made a move. And we had a ministry idea with some other guys that was going to revolutionize church planning, and it was a wonderful. I was going to write my doctoral dissertation at Dallas on it. This was a brilliant idea. Okay. We were implemented, we planned it, all this. Uh, almost a year to the day, it blew up in my face. And the guys that I was working with uh, turned on me. They got angry with me. Not the people in the church, the guys in leadership. And, and I'll tell you this, they were good men, they were godly men, but we got cross with each other. We had different visions and it came out, nobody intended for this to happen, but it happened. And it got pretty tense, it got pretty... Uh, it was not good. I remember sitting on the front porch thinking, why did you bring me here? Why? For this? I didn't need this. I had this. I had this where we were. I thought you were going to bless me here. I don't get this. I was in shell shock. I was stunned. I'd never had um, leadership backlash like that before. We had to bring in a guy, an arbitration, a Christian arbiter, to hold it together. And here's what we came up with. Oh, by the way, because my brilliant idea, which I was going to write on as my doctoral dissertation at Dallas, blew up in my face, I had nothing to write on. And this all happened in a weekend. I'm speaking at a conference, and 
there were some guys there. It was a marriage conference, but we divided them up and did a session for just husbands and the wives room with some other ladies teaching. And I'm teaching some stuff I worked on spiritual leadership. This is like 1987. And when I was done, this never happened to me before in my life. A guy came up to me and he said, what have you written on this? I said, nothing. No one had ever asked me that. The next guy came up and he said, I really appreciate that. What have you written on this? Somewhere between 12 and 15 guys in a row asked me. Never happened before? Didn't happen since. What have you written on this? See, in 10 days, since my topic blew up in my face, I had to come up with a new topic to get them to sign off on it at Dallas Seminary for my dissertation, and that's a big deal. And Mary and I are talking on the plane coming back, and it's pretty clear I think I'm going to write on this about men being spiritual leaders of their family. I had no intention of doing that when we moved there. So we have to bring in this arbitrator to work this out because it's, it's bad. Nobody in the church knows about it. It's just the leadership. And we bring this guy in, and here's what we worked out. Here's what we worked out. They said to me, you preach on Sundays. Do not come into the office during the week. They didn't trust me. Do not come in. We don't want you working with staff. We don't want you doing anything. I said, what am I going to do? And the guy said, well, aren't you working on that paper for Dallas Seminary or something? I said, yeah. He goes, write that. Just, just, you guys. And they all said, yeah, you just work on that at home. They paid me to write my doctoral dissertation on men. <laughs> it's that thick. They paid me. We had elder meetings every Tuesday, and on Monday I'd start getting a knot in my gut because I was going to go into the elder meeting on Tuesday, and I didn't know if they'd fire me or not. So I'm doing all this research I'm in. They're paying me to do it. I finished that, and I'm at a conference, and some publisher hears about here, and he says, you know what, that's a book. You ought to do a book. So I went back to him, and I said, hey, this guy wants me to write a book on this. He goes, yeah, go write the book. Just write the book. But don't come in. I said, okay. So I'm writing Point Man upstairs in my bedroom, And I'm just praying, Lord, let me hang on another week. And my prayer was, Lord, just let me finish this book before they fire me. It was a brutal time. It was a hard time. I did not understand what God was up to. I didn't have a clue what God was up to. I just knew I was so disappointed. I, I was, why did you bring me here for this? I finished the book. Three weeks later, they call. Either you resign or you're going to be fired. So I resigned. Um, that book, there was no men's ministry in the 80s or 70s other than pancake breakfast at First Baptist of Odessa or something every four years. You know what I'm talking about? There's no men's ministry. In the providence of God. See, God's working. He's stirring. And so I write this book to men. Pat Morley just finished a book called Men in the Mirror. Publishers would look you in the eye and say, we don't publish books to men. Men don't go into Christian bookstores. We don't do it. Well, they did it for Pat. They did it for me. And then they're fomenting this stuff up in Colorado with some football coach. And while I was writing Point Man, I remember getting so discouraged I was so discouraged because I was so frustrated. I didn't understand what God was doing, why he had disappointed me so deeply. I didn't understand it. And I'd lost my motivation. I was trying to pump myself up. And I said, you know, Lord, if, if I was just trying to work myself, Lord, if you, if someone called me, this is absolutely true. And I never said this to Mary or anybody. If somebody were to call me and say, we got a football stadium full of 100,000 men, would you come and talk to them about being spiritual leaders of their family? I'd be real pumped. But since that will never happen, <laughs> and I envisioned the Rose Bowl in 1966, because I was there with my dad and my brothers, when UCLA beat Michigan State, number one, Bobby Stiles stopped that Bob Pisa fullback going over, hit that sucker and knocked himself out, and they carried him off the field. It was glorious. <laughs> 150-pound safety hits a 230-pound Samoan running back. They carried him off. He never got his moment of glory. He was unconscious. But I've seen 100,000 people in the stadium, and I say, if you could, that'll never happen. But if you'd get this book in the hands of 100,000 guys, wouldn't that be something? And I would never say that to anybody. I just mentioned it to pump myself up. I'm almost done. I was frustrated. I was angry. I didn't get what God was doing. I thought he'd put me on the shelf. I thought I'd be there forever. And one, two, they tell me you're gone. 
Three years later, I get a call, okay? I get a call, maybe four years later. Uh, two calls, one from my publisher saying Point Man had crossed 100,000. Wow, okay, thanks. Second call, hey Steve, we got a big event at Charlotte Motor Speedway. We think there's gonna be 100 guys. Are you clear that weekend to speak? Uh, there are only 70,000, it was a huge disappointment. <laughs> now here, as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story. I'm at Charlotte speaking. Afterwards, I got my son Josh. We're walking in under the, you know, all the great bleachers, and you know, that place is unreal. It's like Texas Motor Speedway. Walking to get a Coke. I'm walking down this hallway, and I hear some guy go, Hey, Steve! And I turn and look down the hallway, and it's the key guy of the elders who told me to leave. <laughs> and I had a thought, and it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a biblical thought. <laughs> I thought of all the people to run into, what's he doing here? <laughs> hey, Steve. And he starts waking his way to me. How you doing? And his boy and my boy start talking. He said, I, I said, what are you doing here? He said, we moved here two years ago. I said, yeah. He said, I saw you were coming to speak here six months ago. I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I prayed that God would let me run into you. I said, really? He said, yeah, I want to get things right with you. And for 30 minutes, we reconciled in that hallway. And then we laughed about the goodness of God. He was a good guy. Good guy. He'd made some mistakes. I appreciated his honesty. I'd made some mistakes. We got it sorted out, and then we laughed that we were there. Because if they had never told me to stay in that bedroom. You know, I look back now. I've done close to 700 men's conferences in the last 22 years. The majority of them came out of that book I wrote in the bedroom when they had me under house arrest. <laughs> and can I say this to you? It was the goodness of God that he made me wait. And, the good, and those guys were good, godly men, and I thank God we got it worked out and we're friends to this day. Is that not great? Man, Judah, I mean, uh, Josh, you know, the walls coming down is great, but guys, before the walls come down, there's usually a hard season. Is that where you are? Don't lose heart. Don't get bitter. Submit. Yield. Watch your heart. Wait for his timing. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. You'll see it on his time schedule. He's working while you're waiting. Thank you, Father. Thank you for these men. You've all got us, Lord, in periods and areas of life waiting on you. Help us to wait with our whole hearts. Help us to fight off bitterness and frustration. Anger. Help us. Here's what we're saying, Lord. That's what this Hebrews 11 is all about. Help us to trust. Just trust. We don't see everything. We don't get everything. But here's what we can do. We can trust your character because you've never failed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.